Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. You and I were created to live with God forever in paradise. Dr. Neufeld helps us understand the meaning of paradise lost. So let's begin now as we turn to Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 to 15. Actions have consequences, for good or for ill. All things that we do in life have an impact somewhere else. You know, the story is told of a pig who ate his fill of acorns under an oak tree and then started to root around the tree. And a crow flew by and said, you shouldn't do this. If you keep it up, you'll lay the roots of the tree bare and it will wither and die. And the pig responded, well, let it die. Who cares as long as there are acorns? See, actions have consequences, and sometimes those consequences are felt in areas we have not imagined. And sins have consequences that are often profound. When it was announced that one auto manufacturer's diesel engines had software embedded into them that circumvented emission tests, as of the taping of this program, it would seem that this company will suffer massive cutbacks. I assume that many of the workers that will lose their jobs had absolutely nothing to do with the installation of software equipment that would cheat the system. Many of these men and women who, it would seem, who will lose their jobs simply went to work every day and were productive, but will lose their jobs because of something someone else did. And those actions had consequences that reached even to them. Actions have consequences, not just to ourselves. When Eve allowed the serpent to deceive her, and when her husband joined her in their blatant act of rebellion against God, there was not one part of the creation that was not impacted by their decision. Romans 8 speaks of all of creation now subjected to futility. It is in bondage to corruption, and says Romans 8, it's groaning. And so it's not just that sin affected Adam and Eve and that it affected their offspring, but the creation itself is out of whack. Yes, it still reflects the glory of God, but it is infected by decay. The consequences of the fall reach to areas that Adam and Eve had never dreamt about, never imagined. They saw no more than the fruit of a forbidden tree, not the untold billions who would suffer and die in their wake. You know, today as we consider the theme Paradise Lost, we'll see what Paul so aptly describes in Romans 5 verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Wow, that's consequences. Let's read our text, Genesis 3, verses 8 to 13. Remember, this text begins after Adam and Eve had eaten the forbidden fruit, and by that act made their declaration that they did not trust God, nor were they willing to submit to Him. Instead, they proudly proclaimed that they could be like God, God's in their own right. And so here's what happens in the text. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. 
You know, this is but a small section in a wider narrative, and we might only notice this and move on quickly, but I fear if we do that, we would miss something essential to the whole Bible. So even though we're going very slowly right now in Genesis at this point, let's make sure we read this text very carefully. Remember God's original word to Adam back in Genesis 2.17. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. We're going to at this moment do something I deliberately left undone till this point in our study. Why is this tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Doesn't God want us to know the difference between good and evil? And if not, why not? And is there some kind of knowledge that was forbidden from them or even from us today? So what's going on here? Well, whatever the knowledge of good and evil is, we know that after eating of this tree, the Bible says that their eyes were open. There's clearly something they see now that they have eaten that they did not see before, and it must have something to do with recognizing their nakedness or their vulnerability. That's why they run from God when he enters the garden. Some kind of shame around their nakedness creates a reaction. But there's still more changes that they encounter after eating. In Genesis 3.22, God says, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. That would mean that in some fundamental way, some internal change has been wrought in Adam and Eve, and in some fashion, they have become like God. Well, now, in order to understand this phenomenon, we need to see how the rest of the Bible treats the knowledge of good and evil. In the first chapter of Deuteronomy, Moses is reminding Israel of the sins of their fathers who were prohibited from entering the promised land. Their fathers, he says, sinned so greatly that God would bar them from entering into the land of promise, but their very young children, the very children the parents said would be slaughtered by the inhabitants of the land, would enter and see the blessing. So let's listen to Deuteronomy 1 verse 39. And as for your little ones, who you said would become prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go there. Now, in this passage, we get a sense that young children, perhaps to put it into our language, before they reach the age of accountability, can't yet be held responsible for moral decisions. They're too young to know good and evil. So from this passage, young children do not yet have this knowledge. They only get it when they become mature. So let's go to 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9. This is a part of Solomon's famous prayer where he asks God not for riches or victory over his enemies, but rather for wisdom. In 1 Kings 3, verse 9, records Solomon as praying this prayer. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. In other words, give me the kind of mature wisdom that helps me govern within moral categories, not according to expediency. One more reference, and this one from the New Testament. Hebrews 5.14 states, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern good from evil. Now, from these three passages, three things should become clear. First, knowing good and evil is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Second, knowing good and evil is a sign of maturity. And third, knowing good and evil is a goal for all who want to grow in spirituality. So that seems confusing. 
Wouldn't God have wanted Adam and Eve to grow in maturity? Answer, yes, he would have. They were born sinless, but they were not born mature. Adam and Eve, if they had not sinned, and as time went on, would have matured, and their maturity would have included the knowledge of good and evil. But since there is no evil in an unfallen world, God placed a tree in the garden. That tree was the knowledge of good and evil, even if they would never have eaten from it. See, as time went on, they would have realized that obedience to God's commands are good. God had already commanded them, be fruitful and multiply, rule over the works of his hands. And over the years, they would have progressed in this command, and they would have gained in wisdom and maturity in that which was good. But the tree represented the other side of God's commands. This tree was one of the thou shalt not parts of what God wanted. Now, in our world, we're, we're quite familiar with the thou shalt not commands. Thou shalt not worship idols, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder, and so forth. But Adam and Eve did not have these kinds of commands because these things were not in their hearts. So in order to teach them that the life of God involves not only doing what is good, but refraining from doing that which was evil, this tree was put in the garden to help them to understand. See, here's my argument that even if they had never eaten, they still would have, through gradual maturity, come to understand the knowledge of good and evil. The tree, therefore, is very helpful. It gives them the ability to make at least one moral choice. That moral choice was to refrain from evil. But once they've eaten, they have a very different kind of knowledge of good and evil. They have an experiential knowledge. Look at it this way. Imagine you're deaf, and although you possess an intellectual knowledge of sound and might even be able to explain the concept of sound, and maybe even you're able to read music, it's not until you actually hear it that you understand it experientially. And that's how it is with evil. Once Adam and Eve ate of the tree, suddenly their eyes are opened and they hear the first strains of the music of evil, and they are shocked and they're thrilled by what they hear. We're going to say more about that when we come back. Many of us have probably read this passage from Genesis 3 numerous times. But as we study it deeper, we get a sense of what the tree actually represents. And moreover, what happened when Adam and Eve's eyes were opened? And how did this affect the rest of the history of mankind? There's more to this familiar story than at first glance. So stay tuned as Dr. Neufeld shares more about what this knowledge of good and evil means for us today. At Back to the Bible Canada, we are so honored when we hear how this ministry is impacting lives and deepening your walk with Christ. One listener wrote, thank you for continuing to spread his word to the world. Your messages are always on point, impactful, and inspiring, true to his word. May you continue to reach out and give others hope and promise, the hope and promise that only comes from accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. If you've been encouraged, inspired, or moved in any way by a message from this ministry, we'd love to hear about it. To express your encouragement in the form of a gift, simply call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Or to leave your testimony, email info at backtothebible.ca or visit backtothebible.ca and click on contact. Contact. 
We'd love to hear from you. There are two ways of gaining the knowledge of good and evil. You can gain it by allowing God to instruct you and from Him slowly to understand why evil must be avoided. Or you can dive into evil itself, eat of it, ingest it, and fill your being with it. Then too you will understand in a way that mere instruction never could. Look at it this way. Imagine the difference between knowing of adultery or illicit drugs or theft or murder and actually experiencing those things. Once you experience adultery, for instance, you will know it in a way that the one who has never done so never can. You will know of its power to excite you and its power to destroy you. In truth, I'm happy to say I don't know adultery in this way. I know it by heeding the warnings, but not by experience. But that is what this tree represents. But how can they be like God in knowing good and evil? God has not experienced evil. Well, that's true. But he knows everything about evil. And in a sense, when we experience evil, we know everything about it as well. But getting back to Genesis 2, verse 17, God says that in the day they eat of it, they will die. But they don't die, do they? A great many Bible teachers have tried to explain this verse, and perhaps the word day is not meant as a 24-hour day here, but rather is meant as an epoch or an era. The day that you eat of it, that's the day that you enter into a new era. Now, that might be right, but I do notice that as soon as Adam and Eve eat, death is immediately at work in them. And when we speak about death, we can speak about death on three different levels. You know, the first most basic level of death is physical death. You know, from this day on, some change would have occurred within the bodies of Adam and Eve. The Bible says that at the very outset, they immediately notice that they're naked. Now, in yesterday, we noticed that nakedness speaks of their vulnerability. And no one is vulnerable if they're not subject to death. So as we read through Genesis, we notice that physical death tends to be progressive. You know, early on, lifespans tend, at least from our perspective, to be quite long. I mean, Adam lived 930 years and then he died. But he had a son who was killed by his brother, and so death is felt in hatred and in violence. And then after Noah, lifespans are shortened because of the propensity to evil, and Noah's son Shem lives 600 years. Still later, by the time we come to Abraham's father, Terah, he lives 205 years, and Abraham himself lived 175 years. And and by the time of King David, we have David's own word that the average lifespan then was threescore and ten, which was 70 years. From reading the text, it seems like death and the effects of death are progressive. But one thing is clear, death is constant. That's what Paul spoke of in Romans 5.12 when he speaks of death coming through sin. So what is physical death? Physical death refers to not the death of the soul, but the death of the body. The body that God has created is now naked. It cannot survive. But if you follow carefully in the text, we notice that death can also be spoken of as occurring in some fashion on a spiritual level. So what do I mean here? Well, notice the feature of our account seems so curious. Verse 8 tells us, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, for us Canadians, we don't go walking in the cool of the day because for those of you who live in Manitoba, the cool of the day is about minus 40. You walk about in the heat of the day. But in a tropical climate, 
When the heat of the day breaks, the evening presents one with cool relief, and it's a beautiful time to come out. And what strikes me as fascinating here is how normal and human and everyday this sounds. Perhaps God appeared to Adam and Eve every single evening in some form of a theophany. Uh, Perhaps the sound of God was a a thunderous sound, or perhaps his voice was heard. I mean, we're not told, but in some fashion, every single evening, God would enter the garden and speak with Adam and Eve. Now, if you'll allow me for a moment to contrast the situation with ours, I mean, this is fascinating. In our world today, when many people speak of the silence of God, when God seems so very far away, when some even argue that there is no God at all, the the idea of God coming to speak every day, I mean, it fills me with a sense of awe. I mean, I want to shake Adam and Eve and say, didn't it occur to you how blessed you actually were? But on this day, rather than running towards God, they they hide themselves from God. Sin has produced death in them, and and a part of death is death in our spirits, where we find the presence of God no longer welcome. Indeed, I would say that it is the natural impulse of every son and daughter of Adam to hide from the presence of God. Moses, before the burning bush, turned his face away. Israel, at the foot of Sinai, was so terrified at the presence of God on the mountain, they asked Moses if it were at all possible that he would speak to them, not God. For they said, if God goes on talking to us, we're going to die. And by the way, That's why I think idolatry is so popular. It allows us to satisfy the impulse of worship without having to deal with the real living God whose presence we find an unwelcome intrusion into our lives. And that's also why we substitute the impulse for worship with uh, hero worship and sports and movies or with the worship of materialism, anything but anything that would hide us from the face of God and still satisfy this unbearable longing to worship something greater than ourselves. See, spiritual death is alienation from God, and it's death because it's irreversible. This now is how we all respond to God all the time. And yet, God calls out to Adam, where are you? And what follows next highlights how spiritually dead Adam was. At first, it seems that Adam simply answers the question set before him. He responds to God's voice and he explains, I've hidden myself because I was afraid and naked. I'm vulnerable and I'm ashamed of myself. But notice what Adam does not say. He does not say, I found your presence unbearable because I sinned against you by eating of the very tree that you had forbidden me. Now, this information is not forthcoming. Spiritual death means that instead of truth and humility and honest repentance, we make excuses for ourselves. Adam begins by blaming Eve. Adam could have told God that not only had he eaten, he had failed to lead Eve in the way in which God had directed him. But instead, Adam says, the woman you gave to be with me led me into this. He is in this moment challenging God and calling God to account. You promised me that she would be a helper exactly suitable to me. And now look, she led me into sin. Adam is doing what all spiritually dead people do. In the end, we overcome our shame by blaming another and even by stating that God is to blame. And Eve, well, she blames the serpent. And in this is the ultimate irony. Adam and Eve were lords over the creation. They were leaders and governors over all that was in the earth, and they had submitted themselves to the creature rather than the creator. But Eve, rather than humbly admitting that they had failed to take their God-given authority over this creature, 
simply says, I was tricked by the serpent. See, spiritual death transforms a man and a woman from honest, humble, trusting servants of God to deceitful, proud, blaming, opposing God. Since Adam, this is our natural reaction. It's now our natural reaction to hide our sin and justify our sin by saying no one's perfect and blame others by pointing out their hypocrisy. But one thing is common to all of us is that we fail to face our sins squarely. Augustine said that when we truly repent, when we humbly acknowledge that we are profoundly sinful, when we tell God we make no excuses at all, when we acknowledge that we approach God with an impure heart and unclean hands, at that moment, for the first time ever, we and God actually agree on something. For the first time ever, we're on God's side. And might I add, we're also on God's side when we tell him that the only way that we can be saved is through his grace and the cross. That's why conversion devastates our pride. Until we allow our pride to be broken and crushed, we will not and cannot be saved. Physical death, spiritual death, and tomorrow I'll deal with another kind of death, the most terrifying of all, judicial death. God now approaches Adam and Eve as judge. John, a great message, and uh, it stirs up in me this thought about why do we have such a propensity towards sin? Yeah, the Bible speaks of spiritual death. Uh, I'm, those are the words I'm using, but we are dead to God. That, I think, is Bible language. Uh, we simply will not respond to him. Whenever God comes in our direction, we run the other way. That's the human heart that's lost in sin. And it will continue to be this way until the Spirit of God liberates our heart and helps us to see how desirable the things of God are. And yet at the same time, you know, the thing that I'd mentioned about idolatry and that the human heart is this idol factory. We, we produce idols by the score. We can't help doing that because we must worship. We can't stop. I mean, the good news of the gospel, it calls us to the one true and living God, and that truth calls us also to live and be rescued from death and brought into life. Because of our first parents' descent into sin, we've all symbolically partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We've all been infected with the deadly disease of sin. This study of Paradise Lost has helped us better understand the brokenness of humanity, which goes all the way back to the very beginning. May we all experience God's grace to recognize and confess our sinful ways and our habits on a daily basis. Do join us again tomorrow for another installment of Dr. Newfeld's series in Genesis. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. You know, we believe teaching is critical for God's people. And your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. John Newfeld available on this station. But we know there's times when you may miss a day. So we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and your convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series, both audio and video. And you can subscribe to our ministry podcast, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. All the details to be found at backtothebible.ca. Our desire is to provide Bible teaching you can trust to as many people in as many places in as many ways as possible. 
For more information or to support these Bible teaching efforts, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.